Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to begin in verse 24. When I was growing up, my sister and I had chores. I I assume probably most of you had chores uh, when you were growing up. One of my chores was mowing the lawn. And uh, when I started mowing the lawn as one of my chores, it was really fun. You know, you want to get behind that piece of machinery and it's loud and it's noisy and you're cutting things. It was really, it was a fun thing to learn how to mow the lawn. But then after a while, you know, it just kind of became a chore. And um, I remember at one point I I worked out a deal with my dad because I was, I was tired of having to to mow the lawn when he wanted me to mow the lawn. You know, I, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to be in control. And so I worked this deal out with him that he would just tell me that the lawn needed to be mowed by such and such a date. So I could kind of manage my own schedule because I was so, so busy. I had so many responsibilities. You know, I, I would manage my, my time and my schedule. He would just say, you know, have the lawn mowed by Friday. And that was very empowering for me. But uh, you can imagine what happened is I would I'd procrastinate and I'd put it off and I'd put it off and I'd put it off and then I'd, I'd miss the deadline. And after I did that for months, you know, my dad was pretty patient. Finally, you know, that enough was enough. And uh, I lost that privilege. I lost that, that right to be in control. Now, as I've grown up, I've, I've largely overcome that procrastinating thing. I, you know, I still haven't done my tax return yet, but, but I will. Really soon, I'll get that done. Um, or I'll file an extension or <laughs> whatever. Uh, I've also learned, though, that I don't really want to be in charge of everything in my life. You know, as I got older and I began facing bigger and bigger decisions, uh, particularly looking at decisions about career, decisions about a spouse, I realized what I really wanted was a sense that God was in control of my life, that God had a plan. And I could know his plan. I could trust his plan. I could participate in his plan, but that he was in charge. You know, that's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. It's a beautiful doctrine. Charles Spurgeon commented on it like this. He said, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought to more earnestly contend than the kingship of God over all the works of his hands. The throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. So this morning we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. We're going to look at it in the life of the nation of Israel and then see how that applies Uh, very specifically in our own walks with God. I want you to begin to read with me in chapter 44 of Isaiah and verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. 
And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and for Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know, from the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. First lesson for us to draw from the experience of Israel is this. Our lives have always been fully known by God. Now, writers and speakers use repetition for emphasis. And there is a word that's repeated over and over and over again in that section that I just read. Twelve verses. Did you pick it up what that word is? I. I. Seventeen times, actually, in twelve verses... It says I, and if you add in all the me's and my's and the places where God refers to himself as God or the Lord or whatever, there's 17 more times. In other words, 34 times in 12 verses, God talks about himself. The point of this passage is God. <laughs> this is about God. It's about the sovereignty of God. Now, there's one other word that is really important. It only occurs twice. Did you pick up on that word? It only occurs two times. A little, a little trickier. And I've read it a bunch of times this week, and you're only hearing it the first time, maybe. It's Cyrus. Okay? Cyrus. Two times he names Cyrus. Cyrus hadn't been born yet. Okay? God demonstrates that he has known every detail about our lives and every detail about the history of the entire story of humanity by making a prediction. He predicts what is seemingly impossible. He calls Cyrus by name before Cyrus even existed. 150 years before Cyrus would take the throne, Isaiah is given the name of this Persian king. Persia was not the most powerful nation at the time. And through Isaiah, God prophesies that this yet unborn king would become the ruler of all of the nations, the most powerful nations of the ancient Near East. Cyrus. He says, I have called you by name, and I've called you by name to demonstrate that I know everything. I know everything. I even know who's going to be ruler of the earth. And he goes on, he says, through this pagan ruler, I'm also going to restore the nation of Israel. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and the temple will be reconstructed, and sacrifices and offerings will be restored. Not only that, when Cyrus conquers the current ruling nation of Babylon, he's going to do so without warfare. He's going to march into Babylon and he's going to be unresisted. Notice in verse 1, chapter 45, thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. To loose the loins of kings means that they drop their weapons. They drop their weapons, they open their doors. In a moment, we're going to see if that actually came true. 
But what Isaiah prophesies is that this yet unborn king is going to go in, he's going to conquer all nations, and when he goes into Babylon in particular, he's going to go in unopposed. And then he's going to turn around and he's going to allow the nation of Israel, which is now in exile, to return and rebuild their city and their temple. Amazing. And God says all of this beforehand, 150 years before it actually takes place. Second, he claims to have comprehensive or exhaustive foreknowledge. He knows absolutely everything that will occur. Look at chapter 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. That is, I predicted all that stuff that would happen back then. And I'm predicting everything that will happen in the future. I'm telling you that I know absolutely everything. The whole scope of human history. Absolutely every detail. And then he turns in this section, several chapters, that is all about the sovereignty of God and the omniscience of God, the foreknowledge of God, and he challenges anyone else to match him and to make similar predictions. Look at me in chapter 41 and verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strongest arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Just say something, he says. Okay, Tell us what happened in the past and how that's going to transpire and move into the future. I dare you. Prove that you're God. Say something that's going to really scare us. I challenge you to do so. See, in Isaiah's day, the diviners used a lot of methods to predict the future. One of the things they would do is they'd look up at the stars and they would try to notice the different arrangements of the constellations and how things moved through time. And through that, they would try to predict the future. Or they would look at flocks of birds as they flew by and they would notice the formation and the number of the flocks of birds and they would decide based on that what was going to happen in the future. Or they would cut, out, cut up an animal and they would pour its guts out on the ground and they would look at how the guts arranged on the ground and that would determine what the future was going to be. Kind of an inexact science, right? Well, I guess, I guess that they must have gotten it right once in a while because some of these guys kept their jobs. Now, I, you know, I think that we're beyond guts on the ground as we predict the future, but even so... Our best statistical models are based on probabilities, not certainties. When God says, I know the future, he's saying, I absolutely and certainly know the future, and let me prove it to you. And the way that he proves it in scripture is by referring back to prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Now, just in the study that we have been looking at in the book of Isaiah so far, let me remind you what has been fulfilled. What has been predicted and then fulfilled? The fall of Syria and Israel to the nation of Assyria. God predicted that through Isaiah. The failure of Assyria to capture Jerusalem. That they would get right to the neck, that is to the city of Jerusalem, to the walls, but then they wouldn't take the city. That the Assyrian army would be devastated. 185,000 soldiers killed in one night that Sennacherib would withdraw from Israel and he'd go home and he'd be killed. 
And he was. Two of his sons assassinated him. That Assyria would fall to Babylon. That Judah would fall to Babylon. That the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Remember Isaiah is now writing to a group of people who are yet in the future. They open their Bibles and they see (laughs) that's exactly what Isaiah predicted. Or rather what the Lord predicted through Isaiah. And now God is turning and he's saying, I'm going to tell you more of what's going to happen in the future. And I'm telling you ahead of time so that you will know and believe that I am the Lord. And you can trust me. Look at what I've already fulfilled. One of the things you'll notice as you read the book of Isaiah, look for these clues. Over and over and over again, he refers back to the exodus. That God redeemed his people out of slavery. And now his people are in slavery once again, and he refers back to the exodus, and he says, as you are once again in slavery and in exile, there's going to be another exodus, a second exodus, an even greater exodus, and I'm going to remove you from slavery and bring you back into the promised land, and I'm going to bless you. And you can believe me, because over and over and over again, I have proven it by fulfilling my word. And that is an incredibly comforting thing for me. There is nothing that is transpiring in my life right now that surprises or shocks God. Nothing that catches him off guard. Nothing that makes him say, oh no, I better come up with plan B. There's nothing in my future that's going to happen that I need to fear because it's all under the realm of the sovereign rule of God. And anything that he permits, he can work for his glory. That's the first lesson we draw from the experience of the nation of Israel. Our lives have always been fully known by God. Second, our lives are always being directed by God. I want you to keep your place here in Isaiah and turn back to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. So as you're turning back and you see Kings and Chronicles, those are big books, it is just a little bit toward the New Testament. It's right at the end of Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles actually ends historically at exactly the same point that the book of Ezra begins. The year is 538 BC. Cyrus has been king for one year. 538 BC, Ezra chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me, to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And Cyrus commissioned the Jews living in exile, scattered throughout his kingdoms, to go back and even supply them with wealth and resources to go back and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. It was a miracle. The previous kings, the kings of Assyria and Babylon, had displaced people. They had taken people off of their lands. Then they had sent in other people and they had mixed together. They tried to dilute any uh, racial or ethnic purity so that people wouldn't rise up against them. Cyrus became king and he had a totally different policy. He wanted people to be on their own land so that they'd be happy and love him. So he sent peoples back to their own lands and allowed them to rebuild their cities and to rebuild their temples so that they would enjoy his reign. And that's exactly what he did with the nation of Israel in 538 BC. We also learn from Herodotus 
that when Cyrus went to capture the city of Babylon, that the people actually opened up the gates and he didn't have to fire a weapon. Exactly like Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah chapter 45. Actually, uh, Cyrus wrote about it as well. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's one of the the, the greatest archaeological finds in the ancient Near East. Uh, Cyrus had this commissioned in order to proclaim his victories. In particular, he's talking about his victory over Babylon in this this inscription. I'm going to read you a little portion of it. It goes like this. Uh, Marduk, who was the chief god of the Babylonians. Marduk scanned and looked through all the countries, searching for a righteous ruler. Then he pronounced the name of Cyrus, king of Anshan, declared him to become the ruler of all the world. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, legitimate king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four rims of the earth, son of Cambyses, great king, king of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, great king, king of Anshan, descendant of Tyspes, great king, king of Anshan, of a family which always exercised kingship, whose rule, Bel or Marduk, and Nebo love, whom they want as king to please their hearts. Okay, he wrote this. This is, this is propaganda. Okay? <laughs> this is a piece of propaganda. He's writing to the Babylonians saying, your God wanted me here, right? Your God wants me here because I'm such a great and benevolent king. To the Jews, he wrote to them and said, your God wants me to be king. And he wants me to send you back And he commissioned me to rebuild your temple. That's propaganda. Regardless, God fulfilled his word. God exercises his sovereignty in fulfilling his word. This is what sovereignty means. Let's define it. It's a key doctrine. What God foresees, he also accomplishes. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 45 with me and verse 9. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. In other words, this pot you've just made looks like you have no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a young woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and I created upon it, man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. Sovereignty means first and foremost that God has the right to direct all of human history. Does this passage sound familiar to you? Remember where it's referenced in the New Testament? Read to you again. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Remember where that's used in the New Testament? Oh, come on. Romans chapter 9. Okay, Romans chapter, actually, Romans chapters 9 through 11. Uh, in, in those three chapters, there are 12 verses in which Paul references the book of Isaiah, particularly, the, particularly the, this section of Isaiah. The reason being that the Jews in Paul's day were wrestling with the same issues that the Jews in this day were wrestling with, and the answer to their questions was the sovereignty of God. Okay? What were they struggling with? Well, the Jews in Paul's day 
even though many of them were still living on the land, a lot of them were off the land. And the ones who were on the land were under Roman rule. So they still viewed themselves as being in exile. So in all their literature, it's, it's exile terminology. They're in exile. They're under foreign domination and they're wondering, God, have you forgotten about us? God, are, are you going to, be, going to be faithful to your promises? God, are you going to be powerful enough to bring us back onto the land? God, are you able? And then in Paul's day, they hear people saying, Messiah has come, but he was crucified. And they're saying to one another, we wonder about God's methodology. No, I don't think so. A crucified Messiah, and as Paul will say in Romans chapter 11, that the Jews actually have been set aside, that they're not the focal point of God's kingdom program. No, that, that just can't be. That can't be. Uh, right now I'm listening to uh, uh, some lectures by a Jewish scholar on the history of Israel, and he has just moved into the period of uh, Christianity in the promised land. And he talks about the fact that there were lots of messiahs coming up here and there. And which ones could possibly have been credible messiahs and which not? And he takes Jesus and he looks at him for about 30 seconds and says, obviously he couldn't have been messiah because he was crucified. Even to this day, to the Jews, a stumbling block. That's not what messiah is. God, I question your methodology and how you're trying to work. That's what the Jews were struggling with in Isaiah's day. We're here in exile. Have you forgotten about us? Don't you care about us any longer? How could you possibly rescue us and take us scattered to the four corners of the world? How could you actually gather us and remake our nation? How could it be that we could rebuild our city once again and have our temple and worship in the land? How could it be? And then God says, here's how it's going to be. A pagan, idolatrous king named Cyrus is going to be Your Messiah. It's going to be your Messiah. Notice chapter 45. 44 verse 28. It is I who says of of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Who else is referred to as shepherd? Well, David, King David. That's a title that was referred, that was used exclusively to refer to the king of Israel. Not a pagan king. Verse 1, chapter 45, thus says to Cyrus, my anointed, my, my Mashiach. And these Jews had to be saying to themselves, God, that just doesn't sound like a good plan. That doesn't make sense whatsoever. A pagan king who doesn't even worship you or acknowledge who you are or your greatness and, and through him you're going to rescue us? You ever felt that before? God, yeah, I, I, want, I want your perfect will but you might want to consider this other plan that I have. I think I, I think I have a better way to work out the details of my life. I'm, I'm sure you're probably interested, God, in, in hearing my plans for myself, for my family, for my neighborhood, for the world. God, maybe you should put me in charge. You ever felt that before? God says, no, I'm going to choose Cyrus I'm going, to, I'm going to work this through a plan that you couldn't even imagine in your wildest dreams because I want to demonstrate that I am sovereign over all the earth. I'm not just the God of the Jews, and I'm not just a God who's localized in Israel. I'm the God of all nations, and so this is my plan. Trust me. God proves that he is in control of our lives by fulfilling his word. 
Second, sovereignty means this. It means that he has the power to direct human history. Okay, not only does he know what's going to happen, not only does he have the right to do so, but he has the strength to accomplish it. Look at chapter 46 and verse 9. It says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that is Cyrus, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. What God foreknows, he also has the power to accomplish. Third, sovereignty means that he has the freedom to direct human history. In other words, there is nothing outside of God that constrains God's actions. God can exercise his sovereignty however God chooses to exercise his sovereignty. And the way that God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty is he has made small s sovereigns. That is, men and women created in his image that make real choices with real consequences, who can vainly attempt to resist his will and not enjoy his program in their lives, or who can cooperate with his will. Either way, God's going to accomplish his will through us or around us, but he gives us the dignity of being made in his image so that we make real choices with real consequences. God delegates to us a limited form of sovereignty. Now I realize what we're doing here is we're dipping our toe into the water of this huge debate or discussion that tries to reconcile the absolute and complete sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And here's how I resolve it. I resolve it exactly the way the Apostle Paul resolved it. Okay? So if you ever wonder and you want to ask me a question, you can just replay Hit this right here, right in the back of your Bibles. I go to Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9, God is absolutely sovereign. Will the potter speak back to the clay? No, it's not wise. Wouldn't do it. Romans chapter 10, man is responsible. Have the Jews heard? Absolutely, they've heard, and they're responsible. The reason that they're outside of the will of God is because of their choices. Romans chapter 11, let's reconcile the two of these. And Paul says, no, rather than reconcile them, this is what I'd like to say. Oh, the depth of the wisdom, the riches of the wisdom, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? That's quoting from Isaiah. Or who first gave, has given back to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Paul says, this is how I reconcile it. I bend my knees and bow my head and I worship and I say, Wow. That is unfathomable. That is unfathomable. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 and 7 read like this. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness. Causing well-being or shalom, peace, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. This verse has been used by some to teach that God causes evil. The word for calamity could be translated evil. It actually teaches something very different. What God says is, I have created an order in my universe. And when you cooperate and participate in my will, you experience shalom, peace, 
When you resist that, you experience calamity. It's the inevitable consequence of sin. We've been talking about that as we've traced this theme through the book of Isaiah. In other words, God's not the author of sin. Sin was introduced into the world through Satan. And when we sin, we're responsible because we, as James says, respond to the lusts of our own flesh. We buy into the lie and we choose to sin. We're responsible. So we have a choice as small s sovereigns living under the authority of the sovereign to participate in his will and enjoy shalom or blessing or resist his will and experience calamity or consequences. Therefore, Isaiah says, yield to the sovereignty of God. That's the only place that blessing is. It's the only place. So third lesson for us is this. Our lives won't be wasted as part of God's eternal plan. God will not waste our lives. And what is his plan? Well, his plan is this, to raise up chosen servants. Let me illustrate this for you. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is referred to as the servant of the Lord. Eliakim, who was the head of the king's household, is referred to as servant of the Lord. David is referred to as servant of the Lord. Israel is referred to as servant of the Lord over and over and over again. This is everywhere in the book of Isaiah. Let's look at one passage, chapter 41, in this context, in verse 8. God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. I have not forgotten you. God has created his people to be his servants. Gentile worshipers are called his servants in chapter 56. Cyrus is called the servant of the Lord. The Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus, is called the servant of the Lord. And we will look at this uh, very specifically in a couple weeks. Jesus's role. Jesus, or the Messiah, the servant of of the Lord in the book of Isaiah is set up as a prototype. He's, he's what Israel was supposed to be. He is what we are called to be. He is the model. We're going to look at his life, the life of this God's ultimate servant as our model for living. Okay, this is the pattern. You see it? God has made men and women in his image to be his servant. Trace this theme into the New Testament. Mary calls herself the servant of the Lord, doesn't she? Now, if anybody had a reason to say, God, I think I have a better plan. (laughs) Wow. Mary, how do I explain this to my friends? God, Mm, don't bother. You're just going to have to live with my will. The apostles are called servants of the Lord. The New Testament ends like this. We are called servants of the Lord. In other words, there is no greater title that a man or a woman could take on than servant of the Lord. Not congressman or governor or president or prime minister. Not a PhD or an MD or reverend. There's nothing that is a higher title than to say servant of the Lord. Aaron, servant of the Lord. Because that is what we were made for. It's what we were designed for. God's eternal purpose is to raise up servants for this purpose. 
to make him known throughout the earth. Back in chapter 45, verse 3. Cyrus, I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places, that is, the wealth of other nations, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name, so that Cyrus might know that it was God. Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. Why? For the sake of Israel, so that Israel would know. And why should Israel know who God is? Verse six, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That is, Israel is chosen so that all nations could know. And when Israel failed, he said, I will raise up a Messiah and it will be too small a thing for my Messiah just to be a light to the nation of Israel. I want my Messiah to be a light to all the nations. And through him, he's going to have brothers and sisters, sons and daughters that he draws into my family. And I want them to be a light to the nations. Men and women, this is why we exist, to be servants of the Lord, to make him known throughout the earth. And he's a great king. He's a sovereign king. He's worthy of our entire lives submitted to his sovereign purpose to do whatever he wants to do through us, whenever he wants to do it, wherever he chooses to do it. A few years ago, I came across a a wonderful short piece of writing. Uh, It's by an eight-year-old boy named Danny Dutton. He lived in Chula Vista, California. He was asked by his teacher to write out an explanation of who God is. And this is his final paragraph. He said, you should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. So don't skip church to do something you think will be more fun like going to the beach. This is wrong. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go with you everywhere, can't go everywhere with you like to camp, but God can It is good to know he's around you when you get scared in the dark or when you can't swim very good and when you get thrown in the real deep water by the big kids. (laughs) But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. Pretty simple, but exceedingly profound. God has chosen us as his servants that we would commit our lives to him and trust in his sovereign will. Whatever he chooses to do in our lives or through his lives, it's according to his plan and he can work beauty through it. He can proclaim his name through it. Even through our sufferings and afflictions, God is not surprised. Would you pray with me? Father, we do worship you as our God who is on the throne of the universe, in charge of all things and completely trustworthy. You know the beginning from the end and there is nothing that escapes your notice. And Father, this morning we present our lives in a new and a fresh way before you. So Father, take us, use us, we are your servants. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you, have a great week.